you confidential get started right after this message. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hi there, and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent, and we have a packed podcast for you this week. Later, you'll hear exclusively from NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg in conversation with Politico's Lily Beyer about the war in Ukraine and how it has shaped the military alliance and European defence. We need a transatlantic bond and we need non-EU allies to protect Europe. But most of all, this is about politics. I don't believe in Europe alone. I don't believe in North America alone. I believe in North America and Europe together and therefore we need to also stand together in Europe. And European Commissioner Vera Jourova sat down with me to discuss a new proposal to tackle the issue of media freedom in the EU. The Commission says the goal of this legislation is to protect journalists and ensure plurality in the media. But some fear it goes too far in allowing Brussels to oversee the content of news. Also, I'll discuss with the Commissioner the latest in the ongoing battle between Brussels and Poland and Hungary about concerns over backsliding of the rule of law. But first, let's discuss an issue that's causing a lot of discomfort around European capitals and in Washington DC lately, and that's Germany's relationship with China. To discuss this, I'm joined by Matt Karnitschnik, our Chief Europe Correspondent in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Well, as we're recording this, uh, the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is in Paris meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron. But the real story that's occupying minds in Berlin at the moment is Scholz's upcoming trip to China. Now, our listeners will remember that last week we spoke about China with our correspondent, Stuart Lau, ahead of the discussion among EU leaders at last week's summit. And in fact, that actually became a much larger, longer discussion than we'd expected on Friday morning, with leaders holding a three-hour discussion and debate on China. And the elephant in the room we were hearing from officials was Schultz's decision to head to China with a business delegation next month and the issue of Chinese investment in a port in Hamburg. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz wants to press ahead with the sale of a 35% stake in a Hamburg container terminal to a Chinese state-owned company. The Ministry of Economic Affairs is running an investment review process as the container port is classified as critical infrastructure. So we've got Matt to tell us more about this. Matt, can you fill us in particularly about what about this planned trip and this issue about the Hamburg port? Well, I think the reason the trip is so controversial really is the timing because Chinese President Xi Jinping has obviously been coronated now uh, leader of China forever. Some would say emperor. And a couple of weeks later, you have Olaf Scholz 
planning to make this trip with a large delegation of German CEOs, which is something that we've we've seen in the past from his predecessor, Angela Merkel. But given everything else that's happening in the world right now and the pressure that Berlin in particular and Europe in general is under from the United States to distance themselves from China a bit, uh, some people are saying this is not the best time for him to be doing so. But I do think it just underscores the economic concerns that uh, Schultz has about the effects of the war in Ukraine. And if you look at the amount of exports that Germany has to China every year, which is over 100 billion now, it's tripled roughly over the last decade. I think that explains why he's doing this. Germany has extensive economic interests in China. And he can't really afford to have a difficult relationship with the Chinese at the moment, given everything else that he's dealing with in Europe. Yeah, and of course, I mean, this was part of the, the backroom discussion here in Brussels was the suspicion that, you know, that Germany had become so dependent on Russia, um, particularly for energy. And now they have this dependency on China, maybe not dependency, but as you explained, their huge trade numbers with China. Now, of course, they're not the only one, but I think it was the fact that he's going with business delegation in particular that kind of rubbed some people the wrong way here. And what about the port of Hamburg story? Fill us in about that. That's an interesting case because there has been a lot of outcry in some circles in Germany and beyond, although I think most Germans are probably fine with this happening. Originally, the state-owned Chinese company Costco wanted to acquire over 30% of this port in, in Hamburg, which is one of the biggest ports in Europe. And because of the pushback Schultz got from within his coalition as well. They're now saying they're going to sell a little bit less than 25%. But I think it's less about, you know, the particulars of that deal and how much they get than it really is just about the signal it sends that Germany is willing to sell at least parts of its critical infrastructure to China at a time when there are serious tensions between China and the rest of the West across a number of of issues. But, you know, again, I think it really shows how wary Schultz is of angering the Chinese at a time when the German economy looks like it's going into a recession. And I think this is the kind of thing that we're going to continue to see from Berlin towards countries like China, but also other countries around the world that are difficult for various reasons in in terms of their human rights records and so forth, that there's going to be a more pragmatic approach towards these countries because Germany is an economy that relies primarily on exports, which differentiates it from many other large countries in the world, including the United States. Mm. I mean, we heard here at the summit last week that this lengthy discussion, and it didn't specifically mention the German issue, but it was there in the ether, if you like. And in particular, we heard that a number of leaders brought up the issue of, for example, the Chinese investment in, in the Greek port of Piraeus during the Eurozone crisis and a lot of concern that Europe could build up the kind of dependency it has done with Russia in a different way. But I think the security of concerns about that are heightened. What about, though, just to finish up on this issue, his own party, of course, he's leading a coalition. They're not all singing from the same hymn sheet on this issue. Schultz, of course, is a a social democrat. And 
that's the party that was also really driving the relationship with the Russians over the last 20 years, in particular when it comes to gas. The Greens, on the other hand, have been much more critical of the engagement with with the Chinese and, and also with the Russians going back many years. But I think when the rubber hits the road here and when, when they see what's at stake, it's going to be difficult for anybody in this coalition to really push a much harder line towards China, because this is ultimately about jobs in Germany. It's also about jobs in the rest of, of Europe. And, you know, you, you raise the question, well, is Germany or Europe building a dependency with China? Well, I would argue that that already exists. And if you look at the data, it's pretty clear that it would be impossible for especially the larger German companies like uh, VW or the chemical maker BASF to get out of China at this stage. They're completely dependent on the Chinese market, and, and that's, not, that's not going to change. Mm, interesting stuff, though, because last week we heard a lot of leaders in France have been banging this drum about the need for Europe to become more self-sufficient, this idea of strategic autonomy with things like the CHIPS Act, the Raw Materials Act, these attempts to kind of improve Europe's industrial policy. But as you say there, unwinding this is another question uh, completely. OK, thanks a million for that, Matt. Thank you. The EU is grappling with many issues at the moment, and we tackle many of these issues on the podcast. War, pandemics energy costs, inflation. But in parallel, there's another disturbing trend happening in Europe, and that is concern about media freedom. According to a report by the Civil Liberties Union for Europe, media freedom is on the decline. Recently, the European Commission proposed legislation to address this issue. So earlier this week, I sat down with European Commissioner Vera Jourova. She hails from the Czech Republic and currently serves as the EU's Vice President in charge of values and transparency. Jourova along with European Commissioner Thierry Breton, are behind a new initiative, the European Media Freedom Act. We propose, together with Thierry, the Media Freedom Act. This is the legislation for the times we live in, not for the times we would like to live in. So we are here today to tell you... The legislation was proposed by the Commission in September and aims to guard against media interference by governments and give protection to journalists. I wanted to better understand from Jourova why she thinks the EU needs a law like this. When you look at the map of Europe, and we have annual report from the Media Pluralism Monitor, which is a very respectful survey, which shows that the trend is increased politicization and all political pressures on media, increased economic pressures, increased security threats against the journalists. And that's why... Because we saw that it is the trend in majority of member states, we decided to propose this media law. Now, the proposed legislation still needs to wind its way through the cumbersome EU process, which could take a while. But if it succeeds, it will cover all 27 EU member countries. However, the legislation would target a few countries more than others. Those where state dominance of media outlets or government interference is rife. In that sense, it can be seen as a new front, if you like, in the Commission's efforts to hold errant member states to task when it comes to rule of law and basic European standards of democracy. Countries like Bulgaria, Slovenia, Poland and Hungary, for example, where media freedom is a concern. There are tendencies not to have public service media anymore, but rather state 
media or state broadcasters or even party broadcasters, which is a complication, for instance, in elections. Mm. Because uh, when you want to keep fair political competition in a country, yeah. you need to guarantee uh, equally uh, pos- uh, possible access to the media. I mean, we saw that this year in, in Hungary. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, where um, the media landscape played into the election campaign in a way that was quite concerning. I, I said that the opposition in Hungary played up the hill. And it's always a struggle when you do not have equal access to media. And when when you look at Hungarian media landscape and the preferences of people, many, many people, especially in smaller towns and rural areas, are watching mainly the state television. Yeah. And you can imagine then what is your chance to achieve good, uh, good result. There's another EU country that has come into focus of late, and that is Greece. Over the past few months, we've learned that spyware was used to tap the phones of a journalist and opposition politicians. I want to turn to Greece now, where the government is facing mounting pressure over a phone tapping scandal. It's alleged that the spyware software called Predator was planted on people's mobile phones, including journalists and the leader of an opposition party. There's been a lot of reaction. The latest way in is the European Parliament. They have called it intolerable and inexcusable. Uh, the Greek journalist. The saga has resulted in multiple resignations and the government denies any involvement. Here's Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. What was done may have been in accordance with the letter of the law, but it was wrong. I did not know, and obviously I would never have allowed it. In fact, the cradle of democracy, Greece, was named bottom of the league of EU countries when it comes to press freedom. That's according to this year's World Press Freedom Index. Commissioner Jourova recently visited Greece. She says she received reassurances from the Prime Minister that the situation will improve. The situation should improve. For me, it's important to hear that there might be a change of the criminal law in Greece, that the disinformation should not be penalized by means of criminal law. Also, that there should be strengthened the safeguards in the law against using illegal wiretapping for the national security purposes. So I was uh, assured by the Prime Minister that there will be legal changes. Uh, and what I always want... In of course, not everyone is happy about the Commission's new Media Act. Countries, including those with a strong history of press freedom, are uncomfortable about the very concept of the EU meddling in press regulation, as they see it, and believe that it could cross the line into controlling the press. Media companies, too, are worried. In particular, they're concerned about the creation of a pan-European body of national media regulators that forms part of this proposal. We decided to deliver a set of rules to protect uh, the media better, in the way of improving the environment for the media. So we are not regulating the media themselves, which is a fear of some, but uh, we want to create better conditions. The media, European Media Board will consist of national representatives. There will be 27 partners around the table who will discuss the issues in the media world, which will require issuing the opinion the uh, European Media Board will issue non-legally binding opinions and reactions on the situation. By the way, also on the situation of some very serious uh, foreign interference. 
and to tell you, to give you so like many proposals in Brussels this is going to be a long road ahead so we'll be keeping an eye on where this legislation goes but finally I couldn't let an opportunity go with the commissioner without asking for an update on Poland and the rule of law as our listeners probably know this has been a long running saga but the latest development came over the summer when the European Commission gave the green light to Warsaw to receive money from the EU's post-pandemic pot of cash But receiving that money was dependent upon Poland making changes, for example, to its court system to guarantee an independent judiciary. As of now, no money has been released. And in recent weeks, a senior EU official said that Poland's cohesion funds, that's the money that the EU gives to member states for investment in things like bridges and roads, could also be under threat. I asked Jarova about this latest issue. On cohesion money, I believe that the ball is now on, on the Polish court. Because uh, Polish representatives, if I understand well the situation, themselves declared that they are not fully compliant. So they need to explain how they meant it and whether the condition is met or not. It's for our colleagues who are negotiating. But I also asked her, was she worried that this continual clash with Brussels and Warsaw over money would backfire and would really damage relations with Poland? This is something I am concerned over years because I, I hear the rhetoric uh, from the Polish representatives which uh, does not open a friendly way how to come back to the negotiating table, I have to say. And the people here in the Commission, we have been always open to sit around the table to discuss the options, but we have to be tough on the basic conditions. And what I sometimes hear from Warsaw is that The rule of law issues are legal issues or ideological issues. For me, none of them. This is about universal principle, which we all agreed on. The countries which joined the, the EU in some moment in the history, they agreed with some universal principles. And this is it. This is what we need to see in place in all the member states. I'm sure there'll be much more to run on this issue between Brussels and Warsaw in the coming weeks and months. So we'll be sure to keep you posted. Now, we'll be back with an interview with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. 
That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. We are now eight months into Russia's war in Ukraine and it's continuing to have a devastating impact on the people of Ukraine, of course, but also on Europe and the wider world. Earlier this week, political senior reporter covering NATO, Lily Beyer, sat down with Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg at NATO headquarters in Brussels. It's been a very challenging eight months for the alliance here at headquarters, but we've also seen a lot of change in this building. At this point, what keeps you up at night? What is the one issue that worries you the most? Of course, I am focused on and extremely concerned about the war, the suffering, all the casualties uh, in Ukraine. I have developed uh, throughout my political life a capability or an ability to sleep when I need to sleep. Uh, so, so that's not the problem. But the problem is all the innocent people who suffers because of the brutal war aggression by Russia against Ukraine. Over the past few weeks, we've seen Russia increasingly targeting civilian infrastructure and cities. What do you think this tells us about Russia's evolving strategy and their intent? I think it tells us a lot both about the degree of brutality that Russia is ready to use to achieve their goals, but also actually it tells us something about weakness because it reflects that they're not winning on the front lines. They're actually being slowly pushed back and they have to give up territory they previously occupied. And since they're not able to stop the Ukrainian advances, then they are turning back to what they did in the beginning of the war, and that is indiscriminate attacks on critical infrastructure and on Ukrainian cities. And of course, this imposes a lot of suffering on the Ukrainian people, but it actually doesn't help the Russians in achieving their military aims on the battlefield. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu claimed over the weekend in conversations with multiple NATO ministers, without providing any evidence, that Ukraine might be preparing to use a dirty bomb. What is your response to this allegation? The allegation that Ukraine is preparing to use dirty bombs in Ukraine is absurd. It's absurd to indicate or to say that Ukraine will use a dirty bomb on its own territory. And of course, what makes us concerned is that this is part of a pattern we have seen before from Russia in Syria, but also at the start of the war or just before the war started in in February. And that is that Russia is accusing others for doing what they intend to do themselves. And therefore, Russia should not use these false accusations or claims as any pretext for further escalating the war in Ukraine. We're now eight months into this war, and even now we keep hearing some critiques directed primarily at Berlin and Paris. And what some of these allies are saying is that countries such as Germany and France could be doing a lot more to support Ukraine militarily. How do you respond to this critique? So I welcome that allies, uh, including France and Germany, are providing um, significant support to Ukraine. Uh, And uh, of course, the victories, the gains the Ukrainian armed forces have made belong to the brave Ukrainian soldiers. But it wouldn't have been possible to achieve these victories without the support from from NATO allies and, uh, and partners uh, over many years, but especially since uh, the invasion in February. Then I call on all allies to do more because there is a need for 
more and a sustained support. Uh, but just recently, Germany delivered uh, advanced air defense systems. Germany has also delivered artillery and ammunition and other types of support. And France has delivered both air defense systems, or are at least in the process of delivering air defense systems, and, and also delivered uh, CSR artillery, howitzers, and, uh, and other types of military support for Ukraine. And that's something we, of course, welcome. And I know that Ukraine is also, of course, strongly welcoming this support from, yeah, from also Germany and France. We recently heard from a senior Republican in Washington that uh, there should be no blank check for Ukraine. We have midterms coming up in the United States. Are you worried at all that the U.S. commitment to Ukraine, at least in terms of the, the amount of military assistance, could be reduced in the future? As the United States has by far been the most important provider of military support to Ukraine, and it has demonstrated the importance of the transatlantic bond. Uh, Canada has also been one of the key supporters for Ukraine. There is broad political support, bipartisan support for this in the United States. I also seen some voices questioning whether the United States can continue, but I'm confident that also after midterms there will still be a clear majority in the Congress, in the House and in the Senate for continued significant support to Ukraine. Partly because if Putin wins in, in Ukraine, that will be a catastrophe for the Ukrainians, but it will also be bad for all of us in Europe and North America, in the whole of NATO, because that will send a message to authoritarian leaders, not only Putin, but also China, that by the use of brutal military force, they can achieve their goals. And that will make the world more dangerous. Uh, we will become more vulnerable. So it's in our security interest to ensure that President Putin doesn't win in Ukraine, but that Ukraine wins and is able to prevail as a sovereign independent nation in Europe. Thinking back to the Madrid summit a few months ago, the new strategic concept labeled China a challenge for NATO uh, for the first time. But we are still hearing significantly different rhetoric from different NATO leaders, for example, at the European Council summit just last week here in Brussels, when it comes to how they characterize their own relationships with China. And now we are seeing Xi Jinping consolidating power. There are concerns about the future of Taiwan. Do you think that the alliance is sufficiently united when it comes to how to address China? We are 30 allies, 30 different governments, uh, political parties in different history, geography. And of course, there will always be some differences and nuances in what different allies expresses on many issues. But what really matters on China is that for the first time we were able to agree a strategic concept that actually reflects the agreement we have in the alliance that China's economic, uh, military, diplomatic power, strength matters for our security. In the previous strategic concept, which we agreed back in 2010, China was not mentioned with a single word. Now we, have, uh, now we address the security consequences of China uh, for us. And we state clearly that China's coercive behavior and stated ambitions are a challenge for our values, for our interests and for our security. And we don't regard China as an adversary. And of course, we need to continue to trade and engage with China. But we need also to take into account that when China is investing heavily in new, modern nuclear capabilities, we see how they don't share our values, how they crack down on democratic forces in Hong Kong, how they are threatening Taiwan uh, and how they suppress minorities, minorities like, for instance, the Uyghurs. So 
all of this is part of a pattern that makes it important for NATO allies to stand together and to address the consequences of the rise of China. And that we agree on, and that's exactly what we are doing. If there were to be an escalation over Taiwan, would that be a situation where NATO would have to respond in some way? Taiwan is not a NATO member, and of course the main task or the main ambition is of course to prevent that from happening. And that's also the reason why we are calling on China to refrain from the, from the threatening rhetoric, and also why we have said that there is no reason for China to overreact, for instance, when we, there are visits from Western officials to Taiwan. Our response is about partly working more closely with our partners in the Asia-Pacific, Japan, South Korea, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and also partly also been very much focused on how China matters for, our, for instance, for our resilience, for our critical infrastructure, and then support all efforts to prevent the situation around Taiwan to become an armed conflict or, or escalate out of control. Um, looking a bit into the future, there are some voices, for example, Harvard professor Stephen Walt, who are advocating for a new model for NATO where Europe becomes the first responder for its region and the United States devotes a lot more of its time and attention to the Indo-Pacific. Do you think that this kind of model could work down the line? Two world wars and the Cold War uh, thought us that we are safer, more secure uh, when we stand together in North America and Europe. And the presence of the United States, but also Canada in Europe, is essential for the strength and the credibility of that transatlantic bond. I strongly believe that European allies should do more about a model where, in a way, the United States, or we decouple, in a way, North America from Europe, that is not a good model because that will reduce the strength, the credibility of the bond between North America and, uh, and Europe. I believe in stronger European efforts on defence, but the reality is that, and I also welcome EU efforts on defence, but the reality is that 80% of NATO's defence expenditures come from non-EU allies, the United States, Canada, but also, of course, United Kingdom and, uh, and others. Uh, this is partly about resources, but also about geography. But most of all, this is about politics. I don't believe in Europe alone. I don't believe in North America uh, alone. I believe in North America and Europe together, and therefore we need to also stand together in Europe. One big question for Ukrainians is their potential future membership in NATO. The government in Kiev has put forward a request for accelerated membership, accelerated accession, but it doesn't look like there's any sort of unity around that question. How do you, as Secretary General, approach this very challenging topic? It's something new that Ukraine has the ambition of joining NATO. That has been stated many times. I remember very well when I was Prime Minister of Norway back in 2008. I attended the Bucharest summit where we made the decision that Ukraine will become a member. Actually, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. NATO's position remains unchanged. We stand by the Bucharest decision. NATO's door is open. And, of course, it's for every nation to choose its own security arrangements, including what kind of security alliance it wants to be part of. And that, of course, also applies for Ukraine. So Russia doesn't have any veto. The focus now is on 
winning the war, on helping Ukraine to defend themselves against the Russian invasion. And we should not do anything that can reduce the unity and the ability to mobilize concrete support militarily, economically, humanitarian support to Ukraine. We have demonstrated recently that NATO's door remains open by having Montenegro and North Macedonia as members over the last few years. And then, of course, the historic decision to invite Finland and Sweden to become members of the alliance. As Secretary General, but also as a former Norwegian politician, how do you see the evolving security landscape in the high north with Sweden and Finland joining with climate change, presenting challenges and perhaps opportunities? We see many things happening in the high north at the same time. We see, of course, increased Russian presence. They are reopening old Soviet-era military bases. We see more air-naval presence. They are modernizing their capabilities, including uh, submarines and not least more advanced weapons. And many of them are nuclear weapons and many of them are deployed in the high north. And of course, this matters for our security. The high north, the North Atlantic, is important also because that is the vital link between North America and Europe. And we have critical infrastructure, we have oil and gas facilities, pipelines, and uh, and also, of course, all the transatlantic cables for information and a lot of data. Then uh, climate change is changing the high north. The ice is melting. More and more, uh, more sea is available uh, throughout the year, especially in the summer season. And that will, at least over some time, open up also for more commercial activities, uh, more shipping activities. And this will also affect the whole security situation up in the high north. That's one of the reasons I welcome uh, that Finland and Sweden will join NATO, because that will increase our presence in the high north. Secretary General, thank you so much for your time. Thanks much for having me. Thanks to Lily for bringing us that discussion with Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. And that's it for this week. We love to hear from our listeners with feedbacks or ideas, so you can get in touch directly by emailing us. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks this week to Ellen Boonen, to our editor James Randerson, and to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks for listening. Listening.